Okay, so great to welcome on the show an old friend of mine of Outlier Ventures, managing partner at Blockchain Founders Fund, Ali Madhabji. Welcome, Ali. So I actually can't believe we've not already had you on the show. Never mind, we, we got around to it in the end. Blockchain Founders Fund's been around since 17. I think we we got connected back in 18. We were off air trying to figure out overlap in, in portfolio. Uh, we, we could identify off the top of our heads at least two, Futureverse and um, Biconomy, but there are almost definitely going to be many more, I imagine, that will come out over the course of uh, the interview. And I think, look, you know, it's as a kind of OG in the space, uh, a fund that's been actively investing, and I believe now investing at a rate more accelerated than ever. You're doing more deals in this quarter than, than you've ever done historically. I think it's going to be really interesting to get your perspective as we come to the end of the year 23 to, to kind of look back a bit of a retrospective, but perhaps more interestingly, look forward. You know, if you're writing tickets now, you've obviously got a thesis for what you think is going to be happening next year. And I think that's a positive uh, way of kind of conducting the interview. So I, I will give a, a very kind of high level, you know, Blockchain Founders Fund, Singapore-based early stage venture capital fund, and one of the top tier funds globally. And uh, I think, you know, you, you do a really good job of kind of value add to startups by uh, kind of helping them, you know, bring their propositions to market. And as I understand it, have historically been investing across Metaverse, GameFi, DeFi, and, and NFTs. I'm sure you'll do a much better job of kind of ex- explaining the, the thesis in more depth. But perhaps before we go into that, who is Ali? How did you get here? Great to get that kind of potted history. It's been quite the journey. I mean, we've, we've known each other in the space for a long time, as you mentioned. I've always been very intrigued around how to create more fair systems. My parents are both refugees from East Africa. A lot of people get dealt, you know, situations and sort of have to navigate around that. And, you know, they were fortunate, obviously, through an unfortunate situation to be refugees and come to Canada. But, you know, being able to create a system where there's a much more level playing field, a lot more transparency, I think that is sort of the the silver lining in terms of how do you make the world a better place, right? And, you know, from the start of going down the rabbit hole on Bitcoin and having a more fair you know, monetary angle to now being able to do it in so many other ways, say leveling the playing field across, you know, all sorts of different digital assets, being able to do it across, you know, just ownership in a digital world, being able to solve potentially major problems around banking. And, you know, how do you help bank, you know, a billion unbanked or underbanked around the world? Like there's so much potential here, right? And so, you know, after getting involved originally in Bitcoin fairly early, I thought I was way late to move into the space. So in 2016, thought I was way late, decided to start an exchange at the time. And it was a completely different market, right? Like finance didn't exist. I mean, altcoin trading wasn't really a big thing. And when you started trying to do that stuff, even in 17, you are having just all sorts of challenges. I remember the amount of failed trade execution that you'd have on things like Kraken at the time was just like disastrous in terms of experience. The world has changed a lot. I mean, crypto and sort of the entire digital asset space has changed tremendously. But prior to all of that, used to be at at PwC, first in assurance and then doing corporate turnarounds. 
used to write a lot in my free time, published three books in the education space, two of them made its number one on Amazon in the ed space, and then worked at PayPal as well, did an MBA at INSEAD, which is a business school in Singapore and France. And so a lot has sort of come to, to get to here. And we recently raised a, a new $75 million fund last year, just excited to be, you know, being able to drive value into some of the best and brightest startups over the last you know, about seven years in the space. And so maybe just tell us a little bit about some of the learnings. If you kind of look back across those cycles, you know, we're now entering a new cycle. What are the learnings you think founders can take or, or investors can take, you know, from having been active, survived, and, you know, not just survived, but prospered across cycles as we enter a new one? There's a lot of learnings. I mean, we work with our founders around this all the time. And one that I'm seeing a lot, so in, in this time time frame, one of the things that we care a lot about is, you know, how do you measure progress over time? I think in a nutshell, that formula for investors tells you a lot about a startup, right? And so how do you measure, you know, how fast something's moving and as essentially in as little, little time as possible? That I think is very critical, right? And it doesn't always mean that a product's fully launched, but what can you measure? How can you sort of understand? I think one thing I'm seeing a lot from startups in this market, it's pretty tight for a lot of startups, you know, being able to show and put forward your best foot is important. But a lot of startups keep telling me like, oh, maybe I'll raise when the market's better. And at the end of the day, like what I see in this market is, this is one of the best times to raise. Like sure, valuations, I think, have corrected a lot from what we saw, you know, last year, the year before and sort of like hype cycles. But right now, investors are all looking for really good companies. They're spending more and more time with great companies. I think even from a lot of our startups, what they're telling us is they're getting a lot of calls. They're able to get on these conversations and they're able to close investors fairly quickly. You've seen due diligence processes, you know, lengthen a little bit from investors over the last, you know, six months or so. But I think you're seeing a lot of investment recovery. I would say actually six months ago to a year ago was a lot harder to raise than it is now. And we always tell our startups, like, you can't time the market, right? Like, you'll win some, you'll lose some. But like, at the end of the day, like, your goal is to like, keep building what you're building and get to your vision and, you know, try to align the right people around that mission. But you can't choose, hey, it's a bull market or it's not, right? Like, if you raise in this type of environment and you can get to the next stage, you'll probably maybe raise at a you know more market premium if the market reflects that at that point. That's, I think, an important thing right now that we're seeing a lot of founders worry about. And in our opinion, it's not something to worry about. It's just more around how do you get what you need and go build with what you can and, and show the world and showcase what you're doing and drive value and you know the market will recognize it. Yeah, and it's been interesting, you know, I think when we began what might objectively be called a winter. I mean, for a long time, I actually didn't think we were going into an actual winter. I thought the recovery would kind of come back. And then, of course, you had all these implosions and that really kind of took us into a deep winter. What capital was left was initially going at later stage, right? I guess people were doubling down on, you know, where they'd previously made bets. What started to happen this year, most investors are coming earlier. So even historically later stage funds are coming to seed and even even pre-seed, which is obviously the kind of area that, that you occupy. So are, are you seeing that kind of stage heat up from an investment perspective, valuations, activity? And why do you think that's the case? Why do you think other funds are kind of coming into your stage now. So I'll run you through the way that we think about it, right? So I would say about a year and a half ago, we saw a wider correction across valuations in public markets. Multiples on SaaS companies, as an example, you know, go from, you know, 25x, 
forward revenues down to like 5x forward revenues. You know, they're somewhere in between sort of 5 and 10 at this point. But so you saw that sort of big correction. And what that meant was, and that was all across, you know, not just SaaS, but across sort of the entire sort of public market startup landscape. What that translated into was your Series A, B, C funds onwards essentially were like, hey, we can't stop deploying, even though our, our liquidity from a public markets has sort of gone, valuations have come down, a lot of our companies may be overvalued. We can't stop deploying, so we just need to move earlier. And so they went to seed and pre-seed. So while you saw a very harsh correction, sort of Series A onwards, you know, even upwards to like 70%, 80%, public markets, 80%, sometimes higher, you actually saw seed and pre-seed valuations go up over the last year. And that was really interesting over the last year and a half. And it was because all of these guys were bringing a much larger amount of money to an earlier stage. What we found that resulted in was actually less deployment then from a lot of funds. Because a lot of funds were also just worried that, hey, there is no Series A, B, C investment, so what's sort of happening? And so we actually saw a fair bit of a slowdown over the last, say, year and a half, all the way leading to, a, I would call it even six months ago or less, right? And what we then saw, I would even say over the last 60 to 90 days, is a pretty large correction now in pre-seed and seed valuations as you know a lot of investors have been on the sidelines a lot of capital has been on the sidelines people were a lot more worried about the economy you're still seeing you know some valuations start to creep back up though you're seeing some public markets starting a little bit it's not fully there yet but you're starting to see i think light at the end of the tunnel in some ways could you quantify that for us like what what kind of dollar valuations or what kind of percentage uplift are you seeing last kind of quarter on quarter? So so I would actually say in some ways valuations are going down a little bit still on the pre-seed and seed. But what we're seeing is a lot more activity. So the thing is pe- things are getting funded. So a lot more is happening now. It's a little all over the place. I mean, we look at typically 400 to 600 companies a month. You know, we're seeing companies with product market fit and pretty strong revenues, you know, let's call it even like 100k a month, 200k a month that might, you know, raise only between like a 10 and 15 million cap, right on a safe. And, and that's dramatically lower than what you would have saw for, you know, a company at that stage a year ago. But the challenge is a lot more of these companies weren't getting funded. So they were just struggling to raise, they were trying to raise they weren't correcting valuations, investors weren't willing to come in. And that wasn't really fully the sticking point, just because a lot of more investors were more hesitant at deploying. And we're seeing that pick up a lot now, which I think is better for everyone, right? Like, what I think everyone wants to see is, you know, companies building great stuff, getting funded and, and continue to make progress, you know, building out what they're doing, and then being able to go raise more to achieve those visions. And so we're seeing a lot more let's call it like oil just going through the cogs, right? And like things are happening, people are raising, right? A lot of the announcements even that we saw of raises over the last year, oftentimes you, you talk to the company like, oh, that was like a year and a half ago, right? And and we're just making the press release now. And you saw a lot of that. We really like now that things are starting to move. I think the, the price of Bitcoin and ETH has helped, right? So a lot of the positive momentum from that is is uplifting the market. But I don't think that's, fully reflected yet. I think people are still hesitant. A lot of people think it might be a bear trap, you know, whatever that case is. But I don't think that's fully reflected yet in say like the venture space. So that that's sort of how we see it. I'm curious on how you see it, because I mean you look at a ton of companies as well. Yeah, well I mean but I think you made a really interesting point, which is you need more than one stage 
for venture capital to rebound, right? Because I think 275 startups now call it in the portfolio across several years, you know, so there's different stages. Within that, there's a subset of portfolio companies that have raised that are growing steadily, but that have not been able to raise growth capital. They're like, look, you know, VCs say they want better growth, but we need more money to grow. Like the limitation literally is is growth capital. And so, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good observation of yours to say, you know, people are going earlier, but even there there's hesitancy because, okay, you, you give money to a team to kind of get, get going, get that, kickstart that initial growth. But if they can't unlock, you know, the, the kind of growth capital that they need, then they're going to kind of plateau a bit. And so you need that whole supply chain in a way to, to kind of recover. And I think we're some way from that. So the capital seems to be the limiting factor on growth of the sector because we're now abstracting away a lot of the UX problems, right? So previously it was UX that was the limiting factor on growth. And 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 now actually I think it's increasingly capital. Of course, UX isn't totally solved, but we're starting to see that become less of an issue kind of at the application layer and maturing of kind of the middleware and account abstraction stuff. So we're definitely seeing the shoots of spring, but Teams kind of get stuck between stages, and that's just because the, the, the overall system, the kind of capital system, isn't isn't functioning. For sure. What I, what I do like about this market in particular is I think like great founders get recognized really quickly, right? Like if you're able to go grow twenty percent month on month, fifteen percent, thirty percent, and you can just show like, hey, we're building. Like, sure, we're small, but. You know, we grew revenue from 1K to 2K, like MRR in, in, in the last, you know, two months. And then, you know, we built it from two to four in the last two months, like last month, right? Like that stands out very quickly in this type of market. And companies that are able to do that in a very lean form, like I, I'm seeing getting, you know, funding fairly easily in this type of market. Yeah. And I, again, I think that the, the word lean is, is a good framing because I think it's capital efficiency as well, right? It's not just capability to execute growth but showing that you can do that in a relatively capital efficient way as we both know like you know the minute that the markets go off all that discipline gets lost both from the founder side from the investor side and we go through this whole process again and i don't know how you feel but we certainly feel this this time is going to be order of magnitude bigger than than previously I guess the hope is is that it's going to be less about kind of infrastructure and, and and tooling, and it's going to be more about kind of execution at the application layer. But you know, let's see. But what's your thesis? So looking forward, you're saying you're doing more deals now than ever. You typically, how many tickets are you writing a month? What's the kind of thesis that's guiding that? Does geography play a part? Are you kind of just looking at talent wherever it is, or is a particular region of interest? from you from a growth perspective? Yeah, those are all really great questions. So we typically write something like two to four checks a month. And to be honest, it's been sort of closer to two per month over the last you know number of months, uh, over the last year, let's call it. And that pace has really increased over the last couple months. This month, we in November 2023, we may actually write, you know, potentially even seven or eight checks, right? So that is a pretty big increase for us. And we're looking to sort of even potentially keep up that pace if we continue to have very strong deal flow, which we do right now. In terms of geography, we're all across the globe, right? So we're very opportunistic across the globe, but I do think there's different challenges that sort of expose themselves, right? So if you take historically, we're something like 
Forty percent North America, about twenty five percent Asia, twenty percent Europe. You know, we just wrote uh, another deal. I think it's our fifth deal in, in, in across the entire portfolio in, in the African continent, and that's rare. And I think in general, we're seeing not a great fundraising landscape in that part of the world. But companies that are able to buck the trend and continue to build revenue and have strong growth rates and and strong retention if they're a consumer app will back it, right? So. We oftentimes will even write checks where other investors aren't writing checks um, if we see interesting opportunities. Um, we're looking right now at a couple of deals in, in Latin America and Central America, right? So again, not regions. We typically write a lot of checks, but you know, if we're seeing companies that are doing cool things, like we're happy to, to continue to get involved there. From a thesis perspective, we, we look at it quite differently. Um, we don't believe in sort of these broad market thesis. So we go very granular. So right now we've got about 25 open sub thesis where we think there's major problems in Web3 and no market leader or an opportunity for someone to use that as a beachhead, right? To sort of grow off of that. I mean, certain things that, that we see oftentimes are not sexy, right? So when we started doing, I mean, even ASM is a really good example when we originally mapped ASM, it was start of 19. I mean, nobody in the world had a thesis on gaming and blockchain, right? And we had conviction on it. You guys had conviction on it. And like now AI sort of gotten really popular, right? And this is what four years later. And the same thing happened with gaming. When we did gaming in 18, we started with Splinterlands and everyone thought we were crazy, right? They were like, why would you try to own assets in a game? It's weird. Like, like this is literally comments that I'm getting, right? And so... You know, we think that there's really interesting angles across a number of things. I mean, right now, I think something that will heat up is probably intent-based trading. So intents are essentially, you know, if if X happens, then I want to do Y. And there's some really interesting stuff launching right now around intent. I think there's an interesting opportunity not only on applying intent-based trading to, to crypto and, and sort of digital asset market, but it's essentially how do you consume in the longer run the entire OTC market that exists in traditional in the traditional world, right? So I think that is is pretty interesting. I mean, there's a lot happening around DPIN in different ways. So decentralized physical infrastructure. It's interesting, but very difficult to scale, right? So depending on what the solution is, how do you actually get like effective, you know, an effective critical mass in different parts of the world as you're scaling it? And I think that's challenging. But if it's something that's more digital, let's say, you know, how do you share more effectively, like GPU compute more effectively, maybe maybe easier to scale than you know, something like hotspot in a, in a city or country when you're trying to do it globally on launch, which is typically how a lot of these guys are trying to do it. We still like gaming. I think a lot of people find gaming challenging. It has really not been sexy over the last year, but we think there's major problems in gaming, right? So I think the single biggest problem we see in Web3 gaming is as soon as any asset gets a little bit popular, any game gets a little bit popular, the asset prices are skyrocketing. And so it becomes its own barrier to entry to its own product, which is like highly detrimental. And on this, we think the solution we've been brainstorming, like essentially rev share based smart contracts. So, you know, you can basically rent out collections of assets and just say, hey, I want 30% of what you earn, you know, as part of the rewards. And it's all smart contract based and split. And so it's not fee based rentals, but it's actually rev share based rentals. So it eliminates the actual barrier to need upfront capital to play these games. And I think that's an interesting solution that unlocks a lot of growth in gaming. I mean, there's a number of other areas right now that we're looking at, but those are just a, a few 
sort of initial ones. Yeah, and it's interesting. There's a theme across Web3-based gaming and even deep in in that there hasn't yet been token economies that work across cycles. So Deepin's a, a good example where the token economy makes sense when it's kind of offsetting the cost of some hardware or some you know, tangible real world cost. But the minute that, you know, the token tanks, the whole thing breaks because, you know, it, there's no longer any point in operating the physical device, owning the physical device, or, you know, or the cost of the, the kind of Im- input, the energy input or resource input. And I guess you were just alluding to similarly with, with gaming there, it, it kind of breaks. It might work in a bull market. It, it breaks in a bear market. And so this kind of next iteration of uh, next gen almost of token economies that can somehow learn from previous cycles potentially have evergreen you know evergreen design so i'm really excited for for these kind of new experiments that will get played out the challenge is there's so much of an incentive to to ignore that reality right in if you think well it's going to be a bull market for two three years and the founding team are able to kind of realize some of that value ahead of a correction then it kind of creates these per- perverse incentives. Like if we go a little bit more nuanced on it, right? Like to me, I'm not as worried about the boom and bust cycles as much from like a price perspective. I think that's naturally going to happen as people speculate on these things, etc. right? I think to me, it's about like the user bases, the usage numbers, like what are you seeing on key metrics on the actual product? And if you can keep growing that, right? So take gaming, for example, you know, if you if you you're gonna naturally in bull markets get a lot of bots, right? But like eliminate all of that and say like what's your core user base and like what's your core things that you're tracking, say like rentals or like games played, battles played, stuff like this that are real, and then like try to measure those types of things and in, in sort of as markets correct. And ideally those things are still growing or strong versus like price may change. I mean, you know, people lose sight, I mean, even in traditional markets of great companies with great products and they undervalue them at certain points in time. And I think you're going to continue to have that aspect, but I think it's how do you keep growing these key metrics, especially with like deep end, like how do you keep expanding the solution, even if the price is a bit more volatile, right? And it might impact growth rates, but I think it's then how do you keep retaining people? How do you ensure people are using it, et cetera? You're investing at the same stage as, you know, pre-seed seed. Often there's a lot still left to think through. You know, you might have a project that is, very web3 oriented you know the token is the kind of fundamental economic unit of value it's where value accrues or you might have a equity based commercial business that may or may not have a token firstly where are you investing are you looking for exposure in both you want you want some you know it's a saft and a safe so you're getting exposure or, or it's a safe that might convert to a token at a future date how important is it for you to understand the underlying tokenomics? You know, how developed do they have to be for you to be able to invest? Because, I mean, without it, it's difficult to do fundamental analysis, right? It's difficult to know where value is going to recruit and even kind of project any kind of value accrual and growth. That's, I think, been like the 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 holy grail question, I think, for a number of years, right? And, and you know, we've, we've made our set of mistakes on this as well, you know, going back to 17, where, you know, we made the right bet, but maybe on the wrong instrument. You know, I think many of us that have been in the space for a while have, have had that mistake, right, that, that we've learned from. And so we always look to be on both if there is both. Now, I think when you've got, you know, 
proper DAOs, which in a lot of cases don't fully exist. There's some good examples, right? But I think that is still like an immature sort of structure that's developing. When you have proper DAOs and governance, like pure token deals make sense. When you don't have that, and you still have equity companies in these structures, which oftentimes when people tell you there's DAOs, and you ask about where the equity structure is, there's usually one which doesn't really mean it's a DAO. That means like you want to be on both. And and part of the reason, there's a couple of things. We're very hands-on with our company. So we don't need the token economics fully developed. And we're happy to work with our companies to figure these out. Or like, you know, some of our companies also have worked with Outlier on these and, and, and like other great partners. And so we're okay with those things not being fully developed. But I think the challenge is oftentimes the founders don't know and we don't know where value will accrue because they don't know what the world's going to look like in three years or five years, and neither do we, right? And so this thing has been the challenge where, you know, you go through a, a boom and bust cycle, like in the last one, and, and all the companies that were raising on tokens then had to raise on equity. We think that it makes sense to just be on both from the start. That's a conscious choice that we've made. And when that's not available, it's a lot more difficult to make that investment. If there is both instruments and we can only invest from one, it's a lot more difficult for us to make that investment. I think you're going to see a lot more investors hesitant on going back fully to tokens that are, say, more structured, institutionalized, have more external capital, things like this. I think you're going to see a bit more of a struggle on that because like there's just too many people I think that have continuously gotten burned where companies have raised on token and then on and then on equity and and sort of were on the wrong instrument. You know, right now you're obviously seeing like the safe and token warrant sort of together. I'm sure it'll split as the markets go boom and there will be more token only funds that'll just do some of those deals. But if there is both, we want to be on both. And I think that's probably the case with most investors that we talk to these days. Yeah, no, I'd agree. And that's definitely the case for us, because as you say, the founder doesn't even necessarily know how things are going to evolve. You want to be able to get exposure to both and also the optionality as well. You might, might want to double down into something. You mentioned institutionalization. I think that's a really good thing to close off on. Do you think this kind of next cycle is going to be driven by the institutionalization of the industry as a whole? ETFs are coming. Is it kind of a different class of investor invention now? I believe in there's two worlds uh, and two worlds that'll continue to emerge and two worlds that'll split and both will exist and thrive. So you've got this institutionalized side that you know, I think is inevitable at this point. It is coming. You mentioned the ETF. I mean, there's a whole lot more. I was recently at a private sort of Goldman Sachs digital asset conference in New York and nearly every investment bank, nearly every major hedge fund was there, present, interested in the space, building stuff in the space. Like there's a lot of activity on that front that's, you know, publicly not even available in terms of information, right? So I, I do think that side is going to thrive and grow. But then there's an entire, let's call it, degen side, which is going to be, you know, creating great products and innovation and pushing the boundaries on things that don't exist in the traditional world that are going to be fundamental to this space that are going to continue to thrive and grow. And of course, when you're pushing those boundaries, there's always going to be challenges and pushbacks from regulatory organizations, et cetera, right? Just to try to understand the innovation, understand what's going on. A lot of this aren't necessarily happening in like sandboxes for specific countries. I mean, when you think about this industry, you know, at its core, it's it's global from day one and there is no global regulator, right? Like you've got country by country, you know, landscapes and sandboxes. And so innately, 
launching stuff globally on day one has its benefits, but it also has its challenges to the current system because of just the way regulators are set up and, and there is no sort of global oversight. And so I think you're going to have a lot of things that push the boundaries and, and continue on that on that sort of, let's call it more degen side or more Web3 native side. And that's good, right? I think there's going to be some drawbacks to it as there always is, but it's it's what pushes this industry forward and innovation forward. And, you know, that's we're we're excited about both sides and we make we make a lot of bets across both sides. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense as institutions come in, you know, capital will flow down, new wealth will get generated, uh, some of it in the hands of natives who will hopefully continue to fund things that perhaps wouldn't otherwise get funded in an institutional context. The great thing about you guys is you you can straddle both of those, right? You you make investments that can appeal to kind of both of those different stakeholder groups. Well, look, Ali, it's been great having you on. Great to have you in the space. Great to hear that you're kind of upping that deployment now. That's exactly what we want to hear and accelerate. It requires kind of the commitment of folks like you who've continued to invest throughout the winter. So, you know, thanks for your kind of support and contribution to the space over these years likewise and uh, it's been great working together and we got to do a lot more deals together let's do it let's get those syndicated if you enjoyed today's podcast please make sure you subscribe rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of web3